0: Susan Stokes Chapman is a writer based in Wales. She grew up in the Georgian city of Lickfield. Her first novel is Pandora. Thank you for joining me, Susan.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Ruth.
0: Now, this is a historical novel. It's set in 1799, right? At the, the turn of the, the 19th century. And I'd like you to just give us a brief uh English history lessons so we can understand because uh, I mentioned in my intro that you lived in the Georgian city. So there were Georgian times, there was the reform, post-reform, which I think were your set. Then we get up to the Victorian era with Dickens, which your novel has a lot of uh, that kind of wonderful Dickensian vibe. Tell us about uh, all those wonderful layers of history that you had to choose as your setting and why you chose the one you did.
1: Well, the Georgian period, as you implied, it was a very, very long period of history. It began in 1714 uh, and goes all the way to the 1830s. So with Pandora being based just at the turn of the century, 1799, it, it did actually coincide with a couple of dates that needed to link the Pandora myth into the Georgian period itself. So if it's kind of go kind of start it off in terms of saying that many people have actually asked me why the the ancient Greek myth in the 18th century why have you done that um how could you do that and to be perfectly honest the answer is actually very very simple and, and very very easy as a general rule the Georgians were fascinated by the ancient world they were there are so many of the georgians especially those in the higher upper echelons of society they would basically um go on the grand tour so the grand tour was a trip which many of the aristocracy took they it was it was for males uh they would go under the tutelage of whoever it was that was teaching them you know many of them were very very educated in terms of literature and culture and many of the English aristocracy believed that if these sons of the family would go abroad they would learn life lessons and the culture of other countries and they thought that was very very important. Uh, One of the places that they tended to go to quite a bit was Italy. So we're going, you know, Rome and then obviously beyond to uh, the Mediterranean, the Greek kind of islands that that's the sort of kind of general premise that that happened there. Um, but with the with that came an absolute fascination with the culture, with the architecture, the general kind of beauty and elegance, I think, that felt necessary after the Enlightenment period. we're also on the cusp of essentially the the French Revolution. We have Napoleon in invading various you know pe- places in Europe. It was something I think that they felt they needed to kind of bring back in terms of gentility, which is a bit odd considering um, ancient Greek Greece and Rome was quite brutal. But they decided to ignore that. They wanted very much to look at the the elegance and beauty of it. As I said, so. The the kind of evidence of this ancient world obsession comes in various ways. So let's consider the fashions of the time to begin with. So the formal Regency era was from 1811 to 1820, but the period from 1795 to 1837, which includes the latter part of George III's reign, it's also regarded as the Regency era. So Pandora being set in 1799, it's on the cusp of it. Women's fashions were already changing from full skirts to a kind of more sedate and graceful design. Um, these were known as the empire style. They were high-waisted gowns, dresses with ga- which gathered a breast and a neck. And these dresses were remarkably similar to the clothing worn in Greece. Even the men, they tended to have quite tight-fitting clothing and that to them, kind of smacked of the very athletic-looking men that were depicted in statues. You know, very kind of masculine, very, very beautiful. But there wasn't much facial hair in those days because they wanted that sort of chiseled kind of look. So they definitely lent on the, uh, the traditions of the ancient world in terms of clothing. But what they also did was they looked at their, their architecture. So much of it was inspired by ancient Greece in one form or another. So the dominant style of the 18th century buildings, and please do stop me if I'm rambling, by the way, because there's a kind no. of a massive sort of <laughs> um, background to this. But it evolved from the Palladian revival. So that was a European architectural style um, derived from the designs of an Italian architect. Um, and these values took from the classical temples of the ancient Greeks and Romans and this style basically developed right until the end of the 18th century so um the that essentially turned into what was eventually dubbed as neoclassicism so it was heavily influenced by Sir William Hamilton's excavations at Pompeii we'll get back to him as well as as I mentioned the aristocratic tradition of the Grand Tour so when they the, these men were going to the, you know italy rome um, greece they decided to bring these fashions back and so if you were to go to georgian london georgian bath or rather london and bath and look at the georgian buildings there you will see very defining features of neoclassicism so you have uh, buildings that with the entrances have these beautiful columns um, kind of Ionic Corinthian sort of columns, they're very, you can see immediately that they're inspired by the ancient temples. Uh, and one of those was actually on the original entrance, uh, the Society of Antiquaries, which was located in Somerset House. Um, and, of course, there are other elements they you know, you were looking at um, the jewellery as well. I talk about cameos quite a bit in the novel. And then if we kind of also think about uh, the great romantics, the romantic poets took their inspiration from Greek myth as well. So Lord Byron's Prometheus or Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn. The point is, it's all very much collected together that you can look at the Georgian period and see that there's a lot of influence in imagery in their life that harks back to the ancient world. I mentioned William Hamilton. I promise you I'm getting to the point, but I had to kind of go back a bit first before going forward. Um, William Hamilton was a vast collector of Greek antiquities. He was based in Naples uh, as a British envoy. And he was essentially under the, um, the kind of jurisdiction of King Ferdinand. Uh, during his 30 plus years where he's living there he collected a vast amount of Grecian vases it was his obsession Uh, and there's a very very interesting story here which I have referred directly to in the novel I'm trying not to do spoilers for anybody who's not actually read it yet Uh, but on researching the Pandora myth. I basically discovered that the box was never a box at all, but a vase. It turns out the box was a mistranslation courtesy of the 16th century philosopher Erasmus. And when he translated Hesiod's Tale of Pandora into Latin, the word pithos, which means a large storage jar of vase, was translated into the Latin word, and forgive if I mispronounce this, Pixis, and that means box. So when I thought about bringing Pandora's box, vase, to London, the best way to do it was by William Hamilton. When Napoleon started going very close to invading, he basically, and this is the irony of it, he decided to ship his uh, vases off to England, thinking they'd be safer there. And he would follow uh, a, few, a few days later. He put them on a ship called the HMS Colossus. It was a naval ship. And tragically, it actually sank just off the Isles of Scilly, uh, which is in the south of England. And it all just kind of came from that. So essentially this novel draws heavily on the Greek myth. It is what I would call a loose reinterpretation because this isn't a direct retelling. It's basically the myth of Pandora's Box reimagined into the 18th century using antiquities as its anchor and yes there we are (laughs) you You wanted a history lesson so there we go
0: (laughs) that was great thank you very much you know it's interesting how the way history layers itself in that uh, for us um, readers in the present this book has the history of of the current time when it's set, but also refers back to that ancient, ancient history. And that's yes. one thing about history. We like to think that it just replaces, you know, mm. the present replaces the past, but that's not what happens. The present gets deposited on top of the past, and some of the past might last a long time, and other parts might just completely disappear and in the present itself might just sink into nothingness if it's an uninteresting period so what you're describing was a society where the hip new retro nostalgic style was uh, ancient greece
1: (laughs) yeah yeah but i think um in all cases of, of history there is it's not necessarily a case of history repeating itself, but there are echoes that kind of go back through the ages and forwards. I mean, I think part of the obsession with Greek myth, not just for the Georgians, I think, but for us now, I mean, obviously there are so many, there's a massive kind of influx of Greek myth retellings. Um, many of them are from the female point of view, some aren't. But I think we have this fascination with the Greek myth because so much of them, even though a lot of them are tragedies, they are life lessons I think in human nature, um, they cover all types of emotions, uh, anger, deceit, um, uh, sa- sadness, happiness, lust, you know, there are kind of elements of every single Greek myth which we can recognise in in life and I think there's just something very lasting ab- about those, it's why they just continue to be so popular. Um, Certainly for me, in terms of the Pandora myth, I think part of the appeal was trying to give a different kind of reflection on who Pandora might have been. Um, Many Greek myths are quite misogynistic. Uh, I think there's still, forgive me, but there's still an element of um, men overpowering women even today in some form or another in this kind of massive cry of um of objection about this uh and again that's something that is very appealing for readers of um books such as Ariadne by Jennifer Saint and Circe by Madeline Miller um Natalie Haynes's newest Stone Blind which is the story of Medusa it's kind of reinterpreting giving new um ideas about these female characters now for Pandora herself in the Greek myth She is incredibly curious. She's basically um, created by the gods. She is given a box or vase and told never to open it. And of course she does. And all of the evils of the world come out. And because all of these evils of the world come out, she's very much uh, considered as a villain. Many women in Greek myth are either victims or villains. And Pandora's curiosity was considered a sin. Now. I wanted to kind of address that and give my dora my iteration of her some sort of agency i I wanted her curiosity to be a strength and i think many of us do believe that curiosity is a strength nowadays so it's the the greek myths and history and even today they're all very reflective of each other
0: you know when you were describing the pandora myth it's struck me that it's really a parallel for uh, the eve story it's the garden yeah. of eden and yeah. the, she's really curious about that apple don't touch that apple they're really yeah. curious about it okay mm-hmm. you're going to unleash uh considered a sin yeah <laughs> considered <laughs> a sin yeah uh, so wh- i i love the way that you have crafted the characters in this book because they're it's really easy to grok what's going on here and, and to, to enjoy the story. You have three really main, right, in the forefront characters and then another yes. level of characters and then some other beyond that. Uh, talk about uh, making that choice because often in this uh, historical genre, people will follow the Dickensian method where, you know, you list 35 uh, 35- Characters in a in a preface, Castler, yeah, and, and say, okay, here, here's who you have to keep track of. And now I'm a fan of the track of the cast list because my little brain might lose track of characters. It's good mm-hmm. to check it out, but. You issue that and follow your own path with this within this genre. Make a kind of a major change, and it super works. It's so much fun to read this book. It is oh. an utter blast. Anybody, and it also you know strikes on a number of genres: mystery, a little bit of supernatural. You have you know adventure. The the. Uh, say, you know, a novel of the striated society. It's all there. It's so much fun to read. But I oh, think the, the, the motivating thing here is the way you deal with the character. So talk about making that mm. choice.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. It's such a pleasure to hear that you enjoyed it in in the way that, that you did. Um, It didn't Did it occur to me? Maybe the thought of putting a curse list at some point did cross my mind, but then again, I do not have 35 plus characters in the novel. Um, I knew, I suppose it's quite a self-contained novel in terms of structure, and that probably makes it easier. In terms of the characters themselves, um, when I first started to write the novel, I actually had intended for the novel to be completely from Dora's point of view. But it wasn't until I got to chapter five that I actually realised, wait a minute, I actually can't kind of carry this novel all the way through. Because the thing we have to remember here is that women in the 18th century didn't have a lot of agency and freedom. That was one of the things I did want to challenge. It doesn't mean that women never did have agency or freedom, but it was very much restricted. And Dora especially is restricted because of the situation she's in. So she's... I wouldn't say she's a prisoner in uh, the antique shop, but she definitely doesn't have the freedom to leave it. Um, There's a kind of underlying message of hope throughout the novel, and that was deliberate. I wanted there also to be that drive and that ambition there. But as much as Dora has decided to make the choices in terms of becoming... Um, solvent with her jewellery making and try to make her own way in the world, she can't actually do that without some sort of help. And I knew without that help, I couldn't carry the novel just from her point of view alone. So that's when Edward started to come in. So I think they are both similar in the sense of they want to achieve something. They both feel trapped. They want to climb. The social ladder him probably more than her I think for her it's literally just to get out under her uncle's um, thumb and be free whereas Edward I believe is not exactly resentful of his background but dislikes it intensely and wants to better himself and to be respected in the academic world. So I knew that they had to bounce off each other in some sort of way. And obviously that relationship um, carries all the way through the novel because the POV switch. But the third character I decided to include to a lesser level in terms of POV was obviously Hezekiah himself. It's very clear from the start that he's a villain. I don't think I'm much of a- This is the
0: uncle, her uncle.
1: This is the uncle, yes. So the uncle Hezekiah. it was very obvious that he was the villain from the start. I always wanted to make that plain because with so few characters in terms of cast, there's not a lot you can kind of do in terms of massive reveals. So I was always very straight with that from, from the beginning, but I quite like the idea of showing the reader what his intentions are to have that. You have the two lighter voices, in Dora and Edward but I wanted that sinister sort of desperation to come through for Hezekiah and we we only find out near the end what the full kind of reasoning is in terms of the catalyst for how he started down this road to begin with but I really enjoyed having that extra dynamic there of a kind of a darker voice in I mean, he is hopeful in his own way, but I think in a way he definitely represents those evils that came out of the the bars, whereas Dora and Edward very much hope. There are a few of the, you know, so this is a selfish kind of ambition, because I think in many ways they could be quite selfish, but they're likeable with it. And you you are kind of, you know, really rooting for them. Um, Yeah, they... I'm glad I, I constructed the novel as I did. As I said earlier, it just wouldn't have worked with Dora completely on her own. Um, so, yeah, there we are. You,
0: you know, one of the things that, that I really liked about this novel was the the grittiness of it. I mean... The, you really focus in especially on uh, the the scents, the smells uh, of mm. the period which which are not good <laughs> by uh, and large uh,
1: you know what, I've been told this is a very smelly novel and I hadn't intended it, I mean I, I laugh when the first heard this is a very smelly novel I thought, well I didn't kind of set out for it to be smelly, I didn't mean it to do that but I think it's very important in historical fiction to, I mean when you're writing contemporary fiction, you can picture perfectly how something is going to look and sound and feel and smell. Um, but I think, potentially, I mean, obviously, I think those things need to be covered because it makes a three dimensional world you can fully picture and immerse yourself in it. But I think it's especially important in historical fiction because many times all we have to go with is um, in terms of, as a consumer, period dramas so of course we can see and we can hear but what about the smell you know this was not a flowery place in the country potentially um but certainly in a city such as 18th century london where there were the streets were not all paved you know the that there were the roads were were dirt though you know there would have been loads of horses it's and filthy. what comes out of that it's filthy, um, there'd have been smoke and coal and um, and, and soot. So walls, you know, might might be blackened. There, one of the minor characters that you, you kind of referred to earlier, he works specifically at the docks as a night soil man, um, or rather, he's in charge of the band of workers that are night soil men. Now, I don't want to be too graphic on a on a podcast, but essentially, there were no sewer systems. In London, and so human waste was disposed of throughout the night and taken down to the docks and they would then be put on a barge and kind of sent down river and they could have been used as manure um kind of fertilizer um for the fields and you know farmers a little bit f- further out, but you know there was no other way to dispose of anything and uh the uh the more watery variety would have just stayed because. Where can that go? You know, so it is a smelly place. And I don't think it would have been right to have ignored that. I think there has to be a sense of reality there. Because I've decided very much to write about the kind of the kind of gritty underbelly of Georgian society. There is a scene, obviously, halfway through the book, where Dora and Edward and Edwards Frank Cornelius find themselves in a very wonderful. Uh, soiree. Uh, again, I don't want to do too many spoilers here, but it does actually highlight how different the social classes were. My obsession with the Georgian period it started by watching the 1995 BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. And I must have been about nine or 10 at the time. Uh, I'm in my late 30s now. And I remember just being so enthralled by the beauty of it and the romance of it. And it wasn't until later that I, because I was as a child, I'd have been looking at that through rose-tinted um glasses, wouldn't I? But as you read and research, you realise the realities of it that, well, what were the normal people like? Those who weren't that, you know, that that lucky. You have to be realistic, I think, in historical fiction. You know, you have the ability to use kind of an historical event as a background but you also need to consider the realities of it in between you know that is where your creative license comes into play you know as a writer it's hard not to ask what if or how or why and so that was very very important to me as a writer to try and portray all of that as much as I could without saturating the novel in, in it um yeah i i felt it was necessary the five senses are incredibly important i think for a reader
0: you do a great job of what they call in the fantasy genre world building mm. and it's just it. as important in a historical novel because as you point out things are very different now <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and you really have to create a whole new world for your characters to act out, you know, these actions because they're also restrained by the technology of the day, the communications, you know, people couldn't just instant message one another. They had to send a letter, which might take weeks, months, years to, yeah. to get any place. You know, one of the things I, I really liked about this novel was the, uh, you have a good sense, uh, you do a great job with the kind of a uh, Sucon of the Supernatural runs throughout this novel and you do a wonderful job of doing what uh, in the science fiction genre they call hand-waving which is to say well is this supernatural or could it be just have some kind of scientific explanation that the characters aren't quite aware of they might suspect it but and uh, I'm wondering so talk about you know getting up right to the edge of that and and looking at it, but never plunging over. It's a really delicate balancing act and it makes reading the novel just, uh, you know, really zooming, extreme fun.
1: Oh, well, thank you. For me, I don't think I necessarily set out to write a fantasy novel. Mine is definitely predominantly an historical novel, you know the whole element of the Greek myth that and Pandora's box specifically. You know there had to be that element of of fantasy there, and I think I've always been quite drawn to supernatural as well. And you know, I've always, as as a movie watcher specifically, I've always rather enjoyed um, the the ghostly kind of um, kind of movies or the uh, dynamic between uh, heaven and hell. You know, God and the devil. Um, anything with some sort of magical supernatural twist I've always been slightly fascinated by but above anything else I feel I am an historical writer which is why I didn't want to go you know delve too far into the supernatural and I always as a reader I quite like it when the endings are ambiguous where you're never too sure um and I don't know whether you or your listeners believe in the supernatural lingo or anything like that but there's always a what if question there as well there is always sometimes a an idea of could could that be real it, it has it, is there a spirit there or does this whole power um i'm not quite as uh, be, you know <laughs> beyond beyond that in terms of thinking that you know there definitely is something that it that exists but it's always a kind of an idea to ask is there Because there are some things in life that are a bit obscure and you you never quite know. And that, so yes, it's it's historical fiction. But in terms of attitudes, you can always, one, you know, it's a kind of a natural inclination to think, I can hear a whisper or I hear a noise and I know nobody's there. Is it something else? And I really liked the appeal of using the Pandora vase as some sort of spiritual entity, but I do make, I do try to make it clear by having the logical um, characters, Dora and, and Cornelius, I think it's Edward that potentially believes it more than, than anybody. Um, it, I think it was just a very, very appealing notion, but because this is, again, historical fiction, I'm using a lot of fact within the novel as well, I need to make it clear that it probably is just their imagination, or just coincidence but always that kind of small doubt. So the ambiguity was was massively import, important to me. If I was writing high fantasy, you know, anything could have gone there, couldn't it? But uh, I needed to at least stay true to the, the realities of it.
0: You know, you begin the novel with a really great scene where somebody's underwater and... Mm-hmm. I've done a little bit of, I can't remember when, I've done a little bit of reading about this, and I thought you did a fantastic job of of portraying this. And and all through the novel, you do a a good job at, because it was a time when, you know, science was just getting its under, two feet under it. And you do a good job of, you know, suggesting, you know, the technological triumphs that, that are to come, and that some people might have had some slight amount of insight into those. And so talk about, you know, uh, creating, you know, the mm. technology of the past, you know, what, the, what in the past was just incredibly high technology. <laughs>
1: yes, but for them it would have been, I suppose. Um, do you remember I mentioned William Hamilton and that fateful um, sinking of the HMS Colossus?
0: Oh, exactly.
1: I had to consider, right... I've got a I've essentially put Pandora's vase on this ship to get it to England, but now it's at the bottom of the sea. I'd have to do my research quite quite a bit here. I knew this, the ship had sank. I knew that it actually hadn't sank too far off the shore. Um it's actually about 20, 21 feet down. Um the ship itself is probably actually still there. Um It was in the 1990s, I believe, that a lot of the um, the collection was actually brought up, and you and anybody who has visited London or is going to or lives in London, they can go and see them in the British Museum. But the point is, in reality, these pieces weren't brought up. But I had to consider then. This is where I had to bend the truth a little bit. What if a couple of them were? So I then had to consider right how would realistically would this happen and that's when I kind of went down the google rabbit hole I suppose to kind of find out basically how would this be done now in my author's note I do actually list this because I've been I've read a couple of reviews online where they I've been told oh you know this wouldn't happen it's not realistic a lantern wouldn't burn underwater it's completely impossible and that's when I'm like well did you read the author's note because In there I mention that actually in 1797 there was a German architect named Karl Heinrich Klingert and he basically created the first diving suit so it was it consisted of a jacket and trousers made of waterproof leather a helmet with a porthole and a metal front looked a bit like um, a a can, a tin can on on their head, they look absolutely ridiculous. Um, but it, ha- it did have a pipe, a kind of a, a turret with an air reservoir, um, which kind of went um, up and connected to something on, on, on top. There was a limited dive time and it could only go to 20 feet. And I thought, this is fantastic, this is wonderful. And the other thing, obviously it did actually have a lantern And it was something to do with compressed air that did make it possible for this lantern to work underwater. Um, And the point is, I would never have put it in if if it hadn't been real. I'd have had to think of some other way of doing it. But thankfully, the the fact was there. I was like, perfect. I can kind of move this in. Um, In reality, the uh, suit was never actually used in the sea. It was tested in a lake. Um, but again, that's where creative license comes in because you basically think, okay, how can I twist the truth? How can I kind of take a fact and bend it to to what I need? But yeah, I I had to get that vase up on the surface, and yeah, that that's how I did it. And uh, we later find out who that diver is, and the consequences of his actions, basically.
0: I uh, I love the divers, the the, the cook cook brother. <laughs> I they were they were really um interesting well crafted you know not the main characters but really memorable mm. and I think you do a good job at creating really memorable like lower caste you know in the in in the uh both in terms of the world and in terms of the novel characters aladi uh, is really fun Lottie, I mean, yeah
1: yeah
0: <laughs> So, so talk about you know uh, creating these characters and, and her her background plays a really an interesting and important part in the way mm. things play out in in the novel.
1: Again, got to be quite careful in terms of spoilers yeah. for any anybody who's not read it. Um, but we find out quite early on that she is the housekeeper essentially of this premises so Hezekiah Blake's Emporium for Exotic Antiquities which used to belong to Dora's parents and they died tragically in an archaeological dig gone very wrong many years before and Dora is as I said earlier under Hezekiah's care under his thumb um and he doesn't like her and he makes it very clear and Lottie takes her cue from him um and her background was not very wholesome. She sees Hezekiah as her rescuer. Um, so she is safe where she is and uh, he favors her very, very highly. But when she discovers what Hezekiah's plans are for Dora, because it echoed her own past, you see, humanity—a lot of humanity—come through then on Lottie's side because, at the end of the day, she understands the background that she came from was not a good life to have, and she wouldn't want to wish it on anybody. So, there is a development of Lottie as a character throughout the novel, and um, she's not my favourite character, but you do definitely warm to her, and I and I warm to her as as I wrote her. Um, So, yeah, she's a a very, very important character. I think she is a moral compass for Hezekiah, even though he decides to completely go in the opposite direction. But she tries, and I think that's really lovely that that she tries. You see that shift in mentality towards Dora and to Hezekiah.
0: One of the things that that I really like the character, Edward, and his his friend slash caretaker, Cornelius Cornelius. Ashmole, Um, Um, Ashmole Library, eh?
1: Yes. Now, actually, the thing I kind of love about um, historical fiction is that uh, they have these amazing names. um, And I like to try and kind of do little Easter eggs for myself, I suppose. Now, for Cornelius Ashmole, as we said earlier, I'm from Litchfield in Staffordshire, so a Georgian city. And there was actually, who lived there, Elias Ashmole, who was the founder of the Ashmolean Museum. So that's where I took the name from. It had the link to Litchfield, my home city, but also a link to the Society of Antiquaries as well, because he was a member. So for me, that was a nice little kind of Easter egg to kind of bunch together. But um Edward and Cornelius, yes. So, I mean, we've spoken about Dora and her agency and how I wanted to kind of transplant the Pandora, the kind of frowned upon Pandora into a much stronger Pandora um, in the form of Dora Blake and how her curiosity was actually a strength and how she's the hero of her own story, basically. Edward is a bit of a softie. I wouldn't say he's somebody that would be considered a hero. I think in his own way, he is, <clears throat> how can I put this? He's not a weak character. He's not a weak character by any means, but he's quite happy, I think, for Dora to be wearing the trousers in that relationship. Um, but that's probably partly because of his upbringing with Cornelius. I think he's used to playing the, the kind of the se- se- second fiddle. He wants, he's strong in himself in the sense that he has ambitions of his own, as I've already you know, said, he he wants to kind of rise above his past and be respected in, in his own right, but he doesn't want to be boss of anybody. He doesn't want to overpower anybody. He just wants to feel worth it in, in himself, essentially. And that is very, very endearing because, um, again, try not to do spoilers, every single thing that happens in the novel it's driven by dora directly she is the one that reaches out to edward even though he sees her first she so she's the one that throws her jewelry at lady latimer so and in basically she's the catalyst from from beginning to end but you see edward develop through that as well he's he he's really struggling with guilt um his own insecurities uh the memory of his past, and you just see him starting to kind of find that voice and with Cornelius as his caretaker, he doesn't like Dora; he does not like her at all and when Cornelius really starts you know kind of pushing down on that and kind of making very sure Edward knows this, Edward starts pushing back, and I think that's a development process in Cornelius as well, where he suddenly realizes, oh, um." my friend again i don't i don't necessarily think cornelius thought edward was a pushover um but i think he always assumed he would be the stronger of the pair and that's quite a wake up moment for him when he realizes that or feels in a sense that he's losing edward to dora and so of course that creates a da- dynamic then between cornelius and dora which i love um cornelius is my favorite character actually um Funnily enough, he was actually based on a person in real life that I don't like and I don't think likes me. And yet he's turned out to be my favourite character. So it's, it's, it's funny. But I think Edward and Cornelius and Lottie, they're very rewarding characters. I really enjoyed them.
0: The the character arcs are extremely well managed in terms of the timing of the novel and reading the novel. Mm-hmm. I and, and I think that the way you play this out and plot it it's very carefully plotted novel i think in every sense of the word so talk was this uh did the plot was the plot foreordained by you understood from beginning to end or was it invented did it evolve as you just took the characters forward through their respective journeys
1: it they definitely did evolve um, I think the answer is a bit of both here. Simply because Pandora, I think, from its conception to its research to finishing a first draft, only took ten months, which is quite fast.
0: That is fast. Considering,
1: considering, I read, I read, I wrote a novel before that that I've since shelved.
0: Took ten years.
1: Infelice, Felice, uh, yeah. it's Italian, uh, means unfortunate. It's on my website if anybody is interested to look at it. It's, a, it's an idea I do want to return to at some point, but not yet. Um, but I had the idea for that when I was at university, and it was 2007 during my, my master's in creative writing. Um, and I, when I left university, I had to kind of get a proper job, a pay, paying job, and I worked all sorts of hours. So. For a while, it was kind of put on the back burner, even though I kind of thought about it and made notes. I never actually officially started writing it though until let's say 2014, I think it was. But the the point is, I spent about 10 years on this one idea, trying to make it work and it never did. And then we have Pandora, which took 10 months. And the novel I'm writing at the moment has been an absolute nightmare from start to finish. And a first draft, which is very, very messy and needs tweaking, that took 22 months. The point I'm making here is that Pandora, I did have a very strong idea about where I wanted it to go. I knew the ending. Um, I already knew what the ending was going to be. Even though Edward wasn't involved in, in that inception at the time, I knew where I wanted Dora to kind of end up. I knew what Hezekiah's fate was going to be, right from the off. Um, I I just had a very kind of strong idea in my head in terms of the story arc. Uh, I think I had all the characters in place very early, even though it wasn't until chapter five of the initial kind of writing that I didn't add Edward in. Cornelius kind of came off the back of that, but it was still quite early in terms of me figuring out who the characters were and where where I wanted them to go. When I say I kind, they evolved. I have you ever heard the term planner and pantser?
0: Oh yes, yes.
1: Okay, so the planner is obviously you plan the knob, you know, something from start to finish. A pantser is kind of flying by the c t d pants, and you just kind of try and write through. Um I what I did, I got a bunch of index cards and I tried to plan out each chapter with a general idea of what would happen, but no kind of sure way how to actually make that come about. And I got about halfway through um just before Lady Latimer's ball and I couldn't figure out how to go from there I knew I wanted I knew where a b c was and xyz but the middle bit even though I kind of had a general idea what I knew needed to happen in it I didn't know how to do it so yeah it's one of those ones where I kind of half planned it half pantsed it and during the pantsing stage that's when those characters evolved but as a general rule they they didn't kind of change too far from what my initial concept of them was.
0: Has there been any, any interest in <clears throat> adapting this as a TV series? I mean, this seems like yeah. absolutely ready-made. I, I, I've watched several British historical dramas and think, oh my God, these people should do that book, or those people oh. should do that book.
1: You know what? I would absolutely love it. It would be a dream come true if uh it could be turned into a TV series or a, a feature-length film. It would be wonderful, but unfortunately, there are no talks about that at the moment. But anybody, anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you are directors, producers, please do have a look. Um fingers crossed, that's all I can say. It would be wonderful um, if I could see. Dora and Edward's story play out on on the big screen um
0: but you never know you mentioned Dora and Edward's story it's a romance and that's mm. certainly an aspect of this book one of a few that's in in the book it's not the only one and, yeah. and I think you do a great job at handling it that you know I'm a guy so to to be honest <laughs> I I like a good monster in a book that's <laughs> but, fair enough That point, but (laughs) (laughs) that said, I think you really handled the romance well. It was you know engaging to 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 see that play up, and you do a good job at not like ratcheting it up so far. So talk Mm -hmm. about you know the I think the restraint suits the period and the characters and the story. Was that why you're uh, crafted it in that way, or was there another reason?
1: I think at the end of the day, I want it to be Dora's story of strength and empowerment and agency in terms of the Pandora myth and how Dora is a modern version, essentially, of Pandora. I wanted her to have her happy ending in terms of her freedom, uh, being successful in the trade that she decided to pursue. And that's very evident by the end, especially when you'll see a business card. Um, a Georgian-inspired business card at the back of the novel. Um, I almost didn't put a romance between Edward and Dora in, but I did sense that there would be readers who would be rooting for them. And, and that is actually one of the ways they potentially did evolve as well. It, it That was, I hadn't set out to make the romance forefront if I was going to put one in, and I decided that it was necessary that I didn't make it forefront. Um, I think it was realistic in the sense that they were both two very, very sheltered people. She hadn't much experience around men beyond her uncle. It doesn't look as if he had any experience with women. So I think um, he was starstruck by her. She was very grateful and became, in a sense, dependent on him in an emotional way. And it was just a natural sort of kind of building up between them if they were people who had been in society so to speak that wouldn't necessarily have happened but i think because they were so posited i think in in their lives prior to meeting it was natural in a sense that that they were kind of drawn together um but so i think in terms of their story arc and the reality of the situation in terms of the historic context i.e. them never having experienced um Kind of anybody really of the opposite sex and similar age before it was kind of a natural progression, but I did want Dora to be the one that wore the trousers, like I said that earlier. She is the hero of her own story, and there's an element of rescue there between them both. And near the end, that dynamic is switched. I'm going to try very hard not to (laughs) kind of do a spoiler there, but you'll notice the dynamic is switched around that she is the one that takes control so, so to speak but they form i think quite a nice sweet partnership i think she'll definitely be the stronger of, of the two um but he'll have his own i think as they grow as a couple beyond the novel um they would he he they, they i think he would find his, his feet and, and be a bit, a bit stronger um, yeah, it, it's interesting. It was. I think it was necessary for it to take a back seat, because this is Dora's story.
0: You include a historical figure. You mentioned Edward Hamilton. Uh, yes, talk we, about we. talk about including you know real people with your fictional characters. Yeah.
1: I w- I just wanted to do it for me. It's another Easter egg. I I like to have real people there. If at all possible, admittedly, I've not actually done that with the novel I'm writing at the moment i I set out to, but it's changed so much now that uh, they're all completely fictional, but for this it it needed to work as I said, it was William Hamilton who was the catalyst to get Pandora's vase to London anyway, and it just because he himself, as an avid collector of Greek antiquity,
0: <clears throat>
1: he didn't just collect the vases he he actually instigated digs this was true I mentioned this in the novel um, he would pay you know he would fund these digs he would go down there himself so he in himself was uh, an antiquarian and I think that was very very necessary in the story arc of Dora's parents why there had to be some sort of connection there um, but yeah I think he was incredibly important to shape the novel but it, but a nice kind of addition to anybody who who knew who he was. Um, Many people probably don't actually, but they will recognize um, the name Lord Nelson. And Nelson uh, was actually the lover of William Hamilton's wife, Emma. So that's kind of implied in the novel. But I think any kind of knowledge of history and anybody who is aware of Lord Nelson would be aware of Emma and therefore William Hamilton in turn. It was just honestly a nice little Easter egg to put in, but also obviously necessary for for the story itself. I couldn't just have the ship there at the beginning and then not bother with him again.
0: The new novel by Susan Stokes Chapman is Pandora. Thank you for joining me, Susan.
1: Thank you very much, Rick. I've really enjoyed it.